Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. My guest today is Xiang Ji. Xiang is an assistant professor at Tulane University, and uh, we will be talking about phylogenetics today. Xiang, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. So, Xiang, what is phylogenetics, and uh, why do we um, care to build phylogenetic trees? So um, the fundamental question we want to do in phylogenetics is to reconstruct this uh, phylogenetic tree uh, named phylogeny. And you can consider that as the uh, tree structure that describes the evolutionary relationship between several species. Right? Say you have human, you have mouse, you have dogs, and you, you can Right, you can build a tree that say how many million years ago they are, they were one species. So all of this co uh, come from the uh, origin of life. So from Darwin, actually. Right. So in this tree, the leaves would be the the species or the genomes that we observe, right? And the inner nodes, the intermediate nodes, would be some distant ancestors that we don't necessarily know what they were? Uh, yes and no. So um, we, we do have some information, say fossils sometimes. And it is quite important, especially when we reconstruct the tree, if we have past information. So that really helps us to uh, say, for example, dating, right? To, to estimate the divergence time between those species. So if you have fossils, then you can use the carbon to um, give you more information outside of, of our statistical model to, to say about uh, approximate what, it, what the range is about this species, right? And another application of phylogenetics uh, these days is, to, uh, uh, is in the uh, region of uh, viral evolution. Right? So there, the leaf nodes will be uh, your sequences from infected individuals. That will be the viral sequences. And in this case, right, um, first of all, the sampling date of those sequences will tell you some signal of the time, right? And the if you think of the tree now, the tree tells you more about how this virus uh, spread over time and over uh, geographic distances. And so you mentioned quite a few things that can inform us, uh, that can be inputs to the inference process when we're searching for the correct phylogenetic tree. So you mentioned maybe some fossils or maybe the, the dates where we collected the sequences, but for so to say mainstream phylogenetic inference algorithms, the inputs would be just just sequences or or maybe genotypes, right, that you collect from samples? Yeah, I think you're right. And to be honest, I, I think the mainstream phylogenetics inferences we are talking about is probably what people um, are most familiar with. But the current situation in phylogenetics is we not only consider sequence information, but also consider other trace information. And the trace information can be your uh, the collection location, the longitudinal and latitude uh, 
positions of the samples, right? And the trait can be other biological traits that you are interested in. That can be the litter size, can be the height, and those things. And um, but I agree with you. The <laughs> for the tree part, right? Mostly the information of the tree, how they evolve, comes from the uh, sequence, comes from the genetic information. And deep down, that is because uh, the we assume neutral evolution. Most of the regions of the sequence or of the genome, right? The the evolution happen. Most of them are synonymous, and they they don't right. It's just the neutral school. <laughs> and so when we consider the tree itself, there are certain characteristics of the tree that we care about, right? So we care about the topology of the tree, the shape of the tree. So which um, which species are placed closer together, and we care about the branch length. Uh, so how much time has passed between the different nodes and leaves in the tree. And also perhaps we care about where the the root of the tree is, which is sometimes not obvious, right? Um, anything else that we care about in a tree? Yes, I think you know a lot. <laughs> so yeah, so just to add to your uh, comments, right? So first of all, when we speak trees, there are two kinds of trees in phylogenetics. One kind of tree uh, is called unrooted trees, where you don't really have a time signal. That is mostly because the statistic uh, models we use are time reversible, meaning there is no signal to tell whether uh, where the time flows can be either way, and that gives you the same probability. Okay, so for those unrooted uh, unrooted trees, right? The, unit of the uh, branch length is the expected number of changes per side. So you can see that the unit of the branch length has nothing to do with time. Right? And this type of tree is the unrooted trees. And they are the most common trees, to be honest. And the other type of tree is time tree, where you put real time in the branch length. And in this case, right? the unit of the branch length will be the unit of your time. So you say years or million years. And you can see it differs from the previous type, right? The previous type, uh, your branch length has a unit of expected number of changes, right? And so to to distinguish them or say to, to extract the time uh, information, what we need is another model to describe how fast or slow your gene mutates or your gene sequence change. And that will be the model for your molecular clock. So that, that will be something I want to add. And another, uh, another inch, so the, some quantities, right, we are interested in, say, what is the time of the root on the tree, right? That only applies to the time tree, where you also need a molecular clock model to, um, to help you date this divergent time. And so what are some of the methods that are used to, to reconstruct uh, this tree? And uh, from, from what we just talked, we need to reconstruct 
the, the branch length, we need to reconstruct the topology, and maybe we need to find the, the root of the tree. Um, so how do people do that? Yeah, that's a very good question. So first of all, there are, my understanding is there are two major, uh, two major fields or two major applications. First one, if you only need to know one, probably this is the one, that is the parsimony criterion. The idea is you want to reconstruct a tree that has the minimal um, changes along the tree between, uh, between the sequences, right? So think of a tree in your, in your mind. Let's say you have three, three sequences, from one from human, one from dog, and one, one from monkey, right? And then on this tree, you have two internal nodes. And in, on the internal node from human to monkey, let's assume dog is the farthest, <laughs> right? Then you, you, the idea is you want to have, you want to reconstruct a sequence at this internal node that has the minimal change towards human and towards a monkey. And similarly, you want to have a, a sequence at the root node that, that leads to minimum change to the, to the leaf nodes. Right. And this type of criteria that you, you only want the minimum number of changes is your objective. And that is a way to choose between all kinds of relationships that can describe the number of species you have. And that is the uh, parsimony criteria. And uh, so people found out, right, and so the, the criterion after parsimony and the criterion most popular these days are called likelihood-based uh, approaches, right? The idea is you use statistic models to describe how you get, how the sequences change or evolve along this tree. And from your statistic model, uh, you can build up a likelihood, right? So the likelihood will be the probability of observing your data given your tree and your parameter. And you, you can have this likelihood and you, you draw inference based on your statistics model. That can be uh, two, another branching, another two branches. One is maximum likelihood, another one is the Bayesian approach, right? But uh, so you can see that for maximum likelihood, right, we, we have this likelihood, and the idea is we want to search through the parameter space, and the parameter includes your topology, and the topology can have your uh, branch length, and your, uh, also there are parameters from your substitution process. The uh, parameters describe the uh, substitution uh, along the tree, right? How they evolve, and all those parameters, the uh, your final estimate will be the set of parameters that maximize your likelihood, your probability. For Bayesian, is uh, it, it's different from maximum likelihood criteria because uh, in Bayesian, what you want is you want to sample from the posterior distribution. So that means you're sampling the uh, parameters from their posterior distribution, not only those parameters in the process, in the uh, continuous time markup chain, right, that you use to describe the substitution, but you also want to 
sample from the space of the tree topologies. So that will be a major difference. So maximum likelihood will give you a point estimate and Bayesian gives you a distribution. And these both approaches that are quite popular today, the maximum likelihood and the Bayesian approach, Bayesian inference, they both rely on the statistical model that you mentioned uh, or, or the likelihood, right? How do we calculate or how do we, before we calculate, how do we define the probability of seeing our data given our tree? So again, think of your uh, three taxa tree. Uh, you have sequences from human, uh, monkey, and dog, right? And for all, on this three taxa tree, you have two internal nodes. That would be the common ancestor, most recent common ancestor of human and monkey, right? And then there is a root node. And on this tree, we only observe the sequences on the leaf nodes that say uh, we only know what sequence we have for human, what sequence we have for uh, monkey, and what sequence we have for dog. But we don't know any sequence information in the internal node because we don't observe them. And the idea is, right, so now we, we, are, we have a model, and that model has parameters. And the idea is if for any sequence that we place onto the internal node, right, for any such a set of sequences, let's say uh, we have, we put a sequence for the most recent common ancestor of human and monkey, right, and we have another sequence for the root node. Then given our model and this set of sequence, right, we can describe how the sequence evolve from the root node to the uh, every leaf node. And that gives us a probability. Okay, and this type of probability will be joined because we jointly consider the uh, leaf node and the internal node, right? But that is not the final uh, probability we want because in reality, we don't observe the internal node and we want to marginalize over. That is the statistic jargon. And it is just equivalent, say, we want to sum over all possible sequences in the internal node that we don't observe, right? We want to sum over all those sequences. So to generate this sum of the uh, joint probabilities to get the final probability. And that is the probability we define. So that's, that's what we say, the probability observing the data given the model. So when we say this, we marginalize, we sum over all possible sequence uh, in the internal node already. So if we were to implement this algorithm directly, naively, what we would essentially do is for each internal node, including the root of the tree, we would enumerate all possible sequences, right? So if we have n mm -hmm. sides, that would be 4 to the power of n sequences. For each sequence, we would calculate this um, joint probability. Yeah. And, and then we would sum all these individual probabilities, which individually will be very small, but once you sum them up, and then you'll find, uh, you know, which, uh, which set of parameters give you the, the maximum um, right. uh, probability or the maximum likelihood. Um, but of course, um, this is not 
a practical solution for anything but the smallest uh, trees and the smallest number of, mm -hmm. of sites. So how do we calculate that likelihood in, in practice? Yeah, so in practice, we use uh, Feldenson's pruning algorithm. And the pruning algorithm, the idea is uh, you go from you go from the leaf nodes to uh, and move towards your uh, root node, right? And the name Feldenson's pruning algorithm comes from the uh, the developer, right? The, that is Joe Feldenson. So for the pruning algorithm, right, they work from the leaf node towards the root, and for let's say again using our three text example, right? So in this case, we want to start from the human and the monkey, like two taxa um, cherry, right? <laughs> and then you move to the first internal node, and the idea is now you, on this internal node, you want to calculate the probability of observing the data at or below this node, let's, just, uh, let's imagine the root node is on the top. Okay, so root node on the top, right? And the data at or below this internal node will be the sequences we observe on human and on monkey, right? So that is something we want to calculate. That is the probability of observing all the data at or below below this uh, internal node, given the site at certain uh, sequence state. So um, we are using a nucle uh, nucleotide substitution model as an example. Say that means uh, for every site, we have four possible uh, states that will be A or C or G or T, right? So in this case, right, for one site, then you want to calculate four probabilities that will be the probability of the data on this side, right? At human and monkey, given the side is a, a or given the side is a G or given the side is a C or given the side is a T. So you see that we can calculate this uh, probability, right? And then we, after having this probability, we can move again towards the root node. On this three taxa tree, then we have, we just move to the root node. Then there we calculate the probability of the data at or below this node, given um, this position is A or C or G or T, right? For the root node, the data at or below the root node is the set of data we have, right? So. At this point, right, you, you have probability of the data given the root node is at A or C or G or T, right? And you what you need is the probability of A, C, G, T, right? Their, their distribution at the root node. And there are um, usually two ways, right? The most common one is uh, we assume your model is at stationary. So you just use the stationary distribution over A, C, G, or T at the root uh, of, your, of your substitution process for the root node. So that gives you the probability A, C, G, and T. And you multiply them to get a joint and you sum over A, C, G, and T because that's the four possibilities again to sum over the joint to get the marginal, right? So there, you see now at the root node, when we uh, sum over those joint probability, we 
just recover the probability of the data given given the model, right? And the easier way to understand is the pruning algorithm, right? So think of the uh, think of the marginal. We when we go from the marginal probability to the joint probability, we need to sum over all those possible combinations, right? And so now you see we have a big sum at the outside, and we have something in the inside to sum over. That is the joint probability where you have where you have all those uh, internal sequences, right? To get this joint probability, we, we in the internal, right? We have uh, multiple multiplications. So uh, so the naive way will be sum over multiplications, right? And then the pruning algorithm is just you you sum and multiply at the same time. So you maybe rearrange, right, the sums and, and the multiplications so that you um, sort of like in, in high school, you factor, right, the, the expressions into like multipliers. Right, that is the idea. And more technical jargon is the pruning algorithm is just a, a is a special case or is a case of the uh, for dynamic programming algorithm, but it is for the tree structure. And so, Yet another way to think about it, why this algorithm is possible, is because the um, the probability of any subtree in our big tree, um, it shouldn't depend on anything that happened before that subtree, right? So if you condition on uh, on the sequence at the root of the subtree, then mm -hmm. The, the probability of that subtree is basically determined and you can pre-calculate it, right, for every possible value at the root of that subtree. And so yeah. you can reuse that computation for all the possible combinations of, of uh, sequences up the tree yeah. or in neighboring subtrees. Yeah, that is the idea. And it's a very good point because I think in many smart maximum likelihood calculation packages, right, Max, maximum likelihood packages, they actually do this. <laughs> they store the uh, probability at the subtree. And when they search through the topologies, right, when they find the subtree, they just reuse it. So it's a very good point. And so this algorithm to calculate the likelihood um, it's been around for quite a while. The, the whole field starts from the algorithm. Without the algorithm, it's not feasible. But knowing the likelihood itself is not quite enough to be able to optimize it, right? It's nice also to know the gradient of the likelihood, which, uh, which is um, basically if you change the the length of the branches of the tree, how does the likelihood changes? And if you if you know that, then you can change it in the direction where where you increase the likelihood, right? So um, how do we calculate? How do we modify this scheme to calculate the gradient? And that's basically the subject of your paper, which we'll talk. Uh, about a, a bit later, but uh, I'm now curious, like how did people do this previously? I see. So 
we we know that the field has been there for decades. <laughs> we just came up with this algorithm. So for sure, you can do all the things you want without um, our contribution. So back to the topic, how do you get the algorithm? How do you get the gradient, right? So the pruning algorithm is already is an analytic form of the likelihood. Right? And in the likelihood, in the pruning algorithm, you, you can just say you can just normally derive your gradient based on the pruning algorithm, right? So, um, so we didn't go into the detail about the mathematical uh, expression, but just think of the, the way we calculate based on the pruning algorithm, right? We, we travel through the tree from the leaf node to the, to the root. Let's say you want to get the derivative of the likelihood with respect to one quantity of one branch, right? And all you need to do is to replace the, uh, that quantity in your travel on the tree in the pruning algorithm by its corresponding um, analytic derivative form in the pruning algorithm, right? So you can see that you, you have the pruning algorithm that is your analytic form of the likelihood, and it's you, you can get the analytic uh, gradient based on the pruning algorithm. And the, the point to note is if you do this, right, then that means for every time you need a derivative, right, you still travel the same direction as the pruning algorithm, as if you're doing the pruning algorithm again. But instead, this time you're doing the pruning algorithm to get the derivative. So that will be something, uh, that is something people do. And um, so that is, say, that is the analytic gradient. Right, so in the age of using computers, right, we always can get the numeric gradient. That would be uh, that would be whatever uh, your favorite numeric approach is, right? Like if you like the central difference, the uh, finite difference approach, you just do a perturbation of, uh, around the parameter value and do uh, uh, do the central calculation. For an algorithm, right, the first thing we care is the accuracy. And you get the best accuracy from your analytic form that is done. But the efficiency-wise, right, so again, from uh, in our three taxa tree example, right, we have three taxa and we have four branches. Let's say we want to get the gradient with respect to each of the branch lines of the four branches. Right, and from uh, using the pruning-based algorithm, right, that means we need to travel this tree four times. Every time we get one derivative, right? And for a tree, for a small tree, right? For our tiny little toy tree, that is fine. But when you work with uh, large trees that has thousands of uh, tree leaves that you don't want to do this thousands of times. So that will be a problem. And that's what we say are uh, not very efficient. Right. So the the idea is that you can apply the same pruning algorithm to one particular partial derivative. So the derivative of the likelihood with respect to any particular branch length, right? But that will require these, uh, this full tree traversal Right, so it would be yeah. 
O of N, right? Meaning um, yeah. it, it would take the time proportional to the size of the tree. And since you have the number of branches and branch length proportional to the size of the tree, then in total, it would be a quadratic algorithm, right? And, and that also reminds me of the forward mode automatic differentiation, right? That's what you would get if you, uh, if you were to apply the automatic differentiation in the, in the forward mode. You would also get this um, one derivative at a time. But um, I, I'm wondering if anyone used the reverse mode automatic differentiation on calculating the gradient so I, I think it would still be a linear algorithm. Yeah, so that's a good point. I think that is some, uh, so from what I know, that is some ongoing research uh, in Eric Meissen's uh, group at Fred Hodge uh, in Seattle, right? So they are exploring automatic differentiation for the gradient based on uh, TensorFlow. So that they, they are using TensorFlow's implementation to, to evaluate and benchmarking the uh, differences. Yeah, so that is, um, that is one, I agree with you. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to me that it, it hasn't been done yet because you know reverse mode automatic differentiation has been around for, for quite some years now, but uh, I'm I'm curious if you if you actually like looked at the source code for the popular phylogenetic inference algorithms and do they use a n squared complexity algorithm or do they use automatic differentiation? Do they use something else? I only looked at several popular ones, right? And I don't think they use that fancy algorithm to get num if they want if they use numeric gradient, but. I think most of them use analytic gradient algorithm for uh, use the analytic form of the gradient evaluations. That is mostly because in the likelihood calculation we have this, we, when we get the probability transition matrix, we need to do uh, matrix exponentiation evaluations. That is where it's quite sensitive. Let's say, uh, you, you well, there are, I don't remember the exact number, but say 19 dubious ways of calculating matrix exponentials. And I think many popular, uh, like the popular way to calculate is you just diagonalize first, right? You, you calculate the eigen decomposition of the uh, matrix and then you calculate the matrix exponential, right? Because of this eigen decomposition, if you just do, um, let's say a numeric or finite difference or whatever perturbation, that eigen decomposition could potentially magnify this uh, subtle difference in your, your numeric error. And uh, it can give you huge trouble. But instead, if you calculate on, based on the analytic form, right, then you don't have any trouble, it just, you, you can just reuse your uh, probability transition matrices. If I understand correctly what you're saying, you're saying that they, in effect, use this n-squared algorithm, right? So they calculate each partial derivative by doing a full a full pruning algorithm? Um, yes and no. So the yes part is they usually occasionally use this n-squared because we all know, right, it is too expensive, it is quadratic. If you only use it to optimize 
small number of parameters, right? And that means you are still using ON for each one of them, but the number of total parameters doesn't scale as the number of the tips, right? In this term, in this situation, could be that you just want to use it for the uh, several parameters that uh, characterize how A change to C, how the substitution process inside the substitution process, right? In this case, you still, your total evaluation is still linear because you just limit your number of evaluation, your number of traversals on the tree. And that is possible, so make it feasible, right? But speaking about the branch length, you still need to um, find all the branch length and there are of the order of n of them. Right. So that's what I that's why I want to separate the branch lengths from other parameters first, right? So we can still do it on the other parameters, but for branch lengths, it's mostly because of the uh, heavy heavy duty computation, the quadratic computation, right? You don't have, you cannot get a gradient for all of them uh, unless you want to pay the quadratic price. And instead what people do is they do the Newton-Raphson uh, optimization where you just, every time you calculate the derivative and this quadratic derivative right, on one branch and you optimize that single branch. Mm -hmm. That is another approach that is say, um, you just enumerate over all the branches, right? Until you don't see any improvement. Mm -hmm. So meaning you don't optimize all the parameters at the same time, but you optimize each of them um, separately. Right, right. If you only need to evaluate, that's the same idea, right? You see here, you are still limiting the number of parameters at a time, because you, when you look at only one branch, you're looking at one parameter. So one evaluation is still just one traversal that is still ON, it's still linear. But once you sum it all up, wouldn't that be quadratic? Because you have N branches and optimizing each branch means computing the even if it's one derivative, but it's still the oh. linear time traversal, so it still ends up to be n times n. When you do this type of optimization, I don't think you can. I don't think you can stop visiting one branch just one time, <laughs> even though you you optimize them one at a time. But you probably need to iterate over several times. Right, right. But but I'm saying at least yeah. right. It will be at mm -hmm. least quadratic because optimizing a single branch right um, will still require a linear traversal in O of n right. traversal. And so once you do that for each branch, however you do that, either you do it jointly by optimizing mm -hmm. all the length simultaneously or you optimize it one at a time, it still ends up to be n times n. Right, so yeah, we are reaching a different aspect. That is the, the, the total time you use in your optimization, let's say. So that's, in, that's not only the time you spend for one optimization step, but that you need to multiply the number of steps you use, right? And to be fair, we haven't done that comparison yet. <laughs> and I don't think there is a winner situation in, in, this, 
in this comparison. Mm -hmm. to, uh, that is because usually when you do Newton Raphson optimization, because you now you, you have not only the first derivative, but also the second derivative, right? The Newton Raphson usually um, converge much faster than you use, say, let's say just only the first derivative. And so you, you can see that now your comparison, when you compare the total time, you need to think of the time spent in one step and the number of steps. And usually in the Newton Raphson scheme, the total number of steps is not that many. Mm -hmm. um, and when we do say a gradient based, right? You, you, may, you may just approximate your Hessian uh, information based on your gradient, let's say the BFGS algorithm, right? If you, let's say um, you use your gradient over all of the branches, right? You get the gradient of all the derivatives of each branch at a time. And still that is one step in your optimization, right? And the total time still depends on how many steps you have. And that, that, that sometimes can be tricky. <laughs> if, you stare, uh, yeah, if you stare at all those optimizations, let's say uh, right, the most popular one or the gold standard is still the BFGS, you can see it's it, it optimized. It has very quick jumps at the beginning, right? And at the end, probably you move to six, seven digits after the decimal point. But every step you increase just that little bit, but you're still running the algorithm. So that would be something different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. But still, what you are suggesting to us is quite um, compelling. So what you're saying is that you can now, like you found an algorithm to numerically compute the, um, or even not necessarily numerically, it's, uh, in, in a way, it's a mathematical expression. There's nothing like approximate about it. So I, I wouldn't even call it numerical. Yeah, so our algorithm is analytic expression. Yeah, so you have this expression for the full gradient that can be computed in, in a linear time, which is the right. same asymptotic time that is used to compute the likelihood itself. Within the same time, you can compute the full gradient without doing, and you know, gradient, if we're talking about the tree of size n, there will be like approximately n uh, elements of the gradient. Those would be the, the partial derivatives um, with respect to the branch length. Two and minus two for the branch length. Yeah, in addition to possibly other parameters that you may have, right? Right. And as I said, I, I think reverse mode dif automatic differentiation would give you the same result, but certainly your version is much, uh, much simpler to implement. Uh, it doesn't require any fancy machinery or <laughs> TensorFlow. Um, it doesn't require, um, you know, numerical differentiation of matrix exponentiation or anything like that. No. How did you come up with this algorithm? How did you know that this algorithm was at all possible? Like what ins inspired you to look for it? Oh, so there, there is no miracle. <laughs> and as we know that the pruning algorithm, Feldhansen's pruning algorithm is just a dynamic programming algorithm, right? So our algorithm again is a, still a dynamic programming algorithm, right? And the um, say um, 
Right. When we introduce the way we calculate the likelihood, we say we uh, we sum over all possible uh, sequences in the internal node, right? So there, we what we didn't say is this type of model because we don't observe the sequences at the internal node is called hidden Markov model. The sequences at the internal node are the hidden states of your Markov model. Right. And when we sum over them, we are just summing over the hidden hidden states of your hidden Markov model. Right. So for the hidden Markov model, the algorithm for calculating gradient is well known. And that is the forward-backward algorithm. Right. And now you can build up the connection forward-backward, right? So the forward mode in for the hidden Markov model is the Feldenstein's pruning algorithm, all right? So the forward mode maps to the Feldenstein's pruning algorithm, and you can see that we can employ the backward mode to get a gradient. And all we do is we just extend this backward mode onto the framework of phylogenetics. So how do you do this on a phylogenetic tree? And that will be the uh, algorithm. Right. So normally, these uh, hidden Markov models, they are linear, right? You have a single right. strand of evolution of the of the hidden state, whereas in phylogenetics, you have this recursively dividing states where each in, each unobserved state gives rise to two unobserved states. But you're saying that overall, this is a, um, a similar situation, yet somehow, as we said, uh, the field has been around for quite some time, and uh, it, it seems like for the first time someone noticed the connection, right? Uh, yeah, too. Uh, we were surprised too. <laughs> People have been using the forward-backward mode for a long time in phylogenetics, right? Let's say uh, when we calculate the uh, marginal, the posterior marginal distribution, let's say uh, that is used to get the uh, reconstruct the ancestral sequences after you, you have your likelihood, right? When we do that, what people usually do is you, they do the forward-backward mode, right? But it hasn't been applied to calculate the gradient. And that's, yeah, that's something we just filled in. <laughs> right. And um, once you have these uh, analytic expressions, uh, there are some other interesting things that you can do. So, for example, you show how to calculate the um, the second derivatives, not all second derivatives, but sort of the main diagonal of the of the Hessian matrix, which which it basically means we uh, we differentiate two times with respect to the same branch length, right? And can you talk about uh, what you use it for? What what can you do having the extra information, have the second derivative? Right. So one thing is, let's say, if you only extract one of them. <laughs> And now you can redo the Newton Raphson step we mentioned, right? So uh, the idea is, uh, if we just look at the Hessian matrix, right? By its size, it is n squared. Right? If we just fill in the n squared entries, that would be a quadratic calculation already. And if we need a linear calculation for each of them, that's this. Let's uh, just move to uh, triple, right? So that is, uh, so that is a compromise. Say so we we 
don't want to uh, pay the price of getting the analytic of the full Hessian, but still we want to enjoy the benefit of knowing something of the Hessian matrix, right? The, the assumption here is you, we are assuming that the diagonal of Hessian will tell us the majority of the information on each parameter direction. So that would be the scale of each of the parameters. So that if we know this information, then we can use it. Again, think of the Newton-Raphson uh, scheme, right? In the Newton-Raphson scheme, if we have the uh, full Hessian matrix, right, you can still do the Newton-Raphson with the full Hessian. But instead, if we don't have the uh, full Hessian, but it's, it's, we just want to use the diagonal of the full uh, of the Hessian that is uh, analytically calculated accurate, right? We want to ex use some information from the diagonal to help us speed up our gradient-based uh, inference procedure. That could be, uh, yeah, in, in the paper, we use it to uh, precondition the Hamiltonian uh, Monte Carlo sampler for the Bayesian approach. And let's say I'm willing to pay the price for the full Hessian uh, calculation. Do you think it would be possible with your approach? Because it, it seems like the calculations would be um, a bit a bit more tricky than just uh, differentiating two times with respect to the same branch length. Um, that's a good question. So uh, first of all, the diagonal, uh, another reason why we put the diagonal of Hessian in there is if we go through our derivation, you can see the diagonal of the Hessian. All you need to do, right, if you just want to uh, calculate the derivative with respect to branch lines, you, you only need to substitute the Q matrix with the uh, Q squared matrix in, in our algorithm. So we, we wanted to show that there is almost no difference calculating the gradient and the diagonal entries of your Hessian matrix. For the off-diagonal parts of the Hessian matrix, you can still um, take advantage that you, you have this forward-backward two traversals already, right? And you can take advantage of all those cached values in your intermediate calculations, but you need to pay the price beforehand, meaning you need to derive the analytic expression of the off-diagonal terms. And this is doable. We just didn't put it in this manuscript. So one thing you experimented with in your paper was um, uh, so-called rate heterogeneity. Um, can, can you talk about what that is and why it's useful to, to incorporate in your phylogenetic inference? Right. So rate heterogeneity. So we are now talking about evolutionary rate. Evolutionary rates come from the molecular clock you're using. So again, now I, we, we hear the word, right? The, the word uh, molecular clock. So you see that we are talking about time trees now. What we care is we, we care about the time at which the uh, species diverge. We care about the, we care about the timing of the internal nodes and we want to draw inference on them. Right. So you can see that um, time, so the usual, usual way of saying is time and rate are confounded in phylogenetics. That is because uh, if you look at their uh, 
likelihood function, right? Only the product of time operate on the branch is the branch lines. Is the likelihood identifiable? But still, it, it still can break the symmetry by uh, introducing more or in introducing differences between times, right? That is one way you improve your inf inference. Let's say you bring in more information in the time part. Um, uh, that would be your fossil information or your sampling date, if the sampling dates are different and they are different enough to give you signals, right? And the other component in the time and time and rate will be the rate part, right? And for the rate, especially for large samples, right? You don't expect all of the uh, sequences on the tree, all of the branches, they, they evolve at the same time. That is almost impossible, right? And to, to incorporate the differences, right? How the evolutionary rate change along the tree, you want to model them, you want to put them into your model. Right, so the that is your modeling choice of the evolutionary rate, how the rate change along the tree, right? To demonstrate our algorithm, the uh, pr the model we choose is the expansion over the very popular uncorrelated rate model. It's more general. It's the more general form of the uh, uncorrelated relaxed clock model, where you have one, you have one rate for each of the internal nodes. So each branch has its own rate. But not only that, we also divide this rate to come from a mixed effect model, right? Oh, I think in the paper, that is a random effects where we have a, a grand mean and a random effect for, for, the, for the small residual parts. And you can see now we have a one rate for each of the branch. And all we do is to apply the analytic gradient algorithm to get the derivative, first derivative for each of the rate in just linear time in two passes, in two traversals. And that is the, um, uh, that is the uh, contribution <laughs> or novelty of the paper. And you did quite a few numerical or data-driven experiments, so to say, in, in the paper. Were there any interesting findings, any conclusions you, you'd like to share? Uh, yeah. So, so again, if you just care about the accuracy of gradient, then forget about our algorithm, because you can do that with analytic form based on pruning algorithm. The algorithm we proposed helps you to get the same quantity, the same analytic form, faster. So the um, the experiments we, we perform is just to uh, see how fast we can get. So we, we did experiments in two uh, scenarios. One is on the maximum likelihood uh, frame framework, and the other is a Bayesian framework. In the maximum likelihood framework, we just optimized over the space of the uh, evolutionary rates. And, and again, we choose the branch-specific rate as an example um, to use here. Uh, so there we just, we, we plugged in our gradient into the uh, gold standard BFGS algorithm, 
that is the optimizer we choose, right? And we compare it to the same optimizer, but instead using a numeric finite difference numeric uh, algorithm for the gradient to compare the uh, speed difference. And there we observe a 126 to 234 fold difference. So the fold change is quite coherent with the size of your data. So the size of the data, the larger the size because of the, um, because of the uh, save in your uh, algorithm, in the gradient part, right, you change from quadratic to linear, the more time you save. So, uh, so that is the maximum likelihood part. For the Bayesian part, right, because now we have we, we have the uh, linear time gradient evaluations. That means uh, the gradient evaluations is no longer a computational bottleneck for us. So we can enjoin the rich uh, development over the past decade on uh, gradient-based samplers in the Bayesian framework. And the gradient-based sampler we choose uh, in this case is the Hamiltonian Monte Carlo sampler. And there, uh, if we, uh, so again, Bayesian approach, right, instead of generating a point estimate, we care about the distribution. And for characterizing your distribution, you use the effective sample size. That is because of the uh, correlation nature of your markup chain. Because every time you move to the next step from your previous step, so they are correlated. Okay. And the effective sample size is a measure over how good your approximation of the uh, uh, of the distribution is. And in a rule of thumb is you want to uh, maximize this effective sample size as much as possible. Okay. And the measure we use to to characterize how good um, the Hamiltonian Monte Carlo sampler perform over the traditional random walk samplers is we look at among all the dimensions of the branch specific rate, uh, we get all of their effective sample size, right? And then we look at the minimum, the median, right? To see, because at the end of the day, the only dimension that ruins your Markov chain is the minimum effective sample size. You want the minimum effective sample size to be above certain thresholds so, so that your approximation for all of the uh, parameters are good enough. So if we just look at the minimum effective sample size, right, and we compare the uh, effective sample size you get per unit time of different samplers, then Hamiltonian Monte Carlo sampler give us uh, um, a 16 to 33-fold increase over over the traditional um, random walk samplers. That uh, right, the difference is from the Hamiltonian Monte Carlo uh, because it used the gradient over all dimensions. So that's the HMC Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. It proposed new values for all of the dimensions at a time. Uh, compared to the traditional uh, random walk parameter uh, sampler, right? I propose a new value for a parameter at a time. So that is the major difference. Cool. Um, anything else you, you want to talk about? Anything we, we haven't covered? Oh, 
we we have implemented the uh, algorithm, the gradient algorithm in the Beagle package, and Beagle package is open source and uh, available on GitHub. Uh, another thing is the Hamiltonian Monte Carlo algorithm or the sampler we just mentioned, and also the uh, molecular clock model, it, they are implemented in the Beast software. So Beast software spell as B-E-A-S-T, and that, that stands for uh, Bayesian Evolutionary Analysis by Sampling Trees. So it's another uh, open source software. And if you're interested in Bayesian uh, analysis on uh, evolution on phylogenetics, please take a look over uh, the software. It's one of the most popular software in our field. Yeah, very, very cool work. Um, I think it's a great um, contribution to the, the the field of phylogenetics, uh, what you did. And thanks. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm.